Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Chris, the general manager of digital transformation at Vitria, and we discuss the intersection of DevOps and AIOps, what a successful pivot looks like for a well-established organization, and how to get your team on board using empathy and enrollment. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hello, hello. Greetings. That's a pretty, it's uh, a pretty good-looking studio you got there. Thank you so much. It's official. You know, it's a legitimate studio because we have a fake wall. I'm not supposed to talk about. Yeah, you got the ship lap yeah. uh, thing there on the on the side. It's nice. Yep. Yep. You don't have a fake wall. What's going on? I don't know. I need I need one. It's the it's the it's the in thing, I guess. I don't have the cool palm tree in the background either or anything like that. It's, uh, this is stripped down. You get the bare bones, Chris, here. It'd be so cool though if we panned your shot out and you were like on a movie set in like a fake bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Oh man, I was so excited when I was like researching you and the thing I thought was really cool, like right off the bat was that you founded an ISP when you were 19. What was that like? Yeah, there was, um, you know, the, the, the story started out, my dad called me, I was in college, I was a computer engineering student and he called me up and he, he was a travel agent in a previous life earlier before he sort of semi-retired. And he said, I ran into this guy and he told me about this online travel agency and I could be an online travel agent. And he's, he goes through this thing and he says, I, I need you to help me set that up. And the first funny question was, dad, do you know what online means? Uh, no, no, not really. And so I went to researching it and, you know, started to see what it cost to build a website, what it cost to host a website, what it cost to, you know, get people connected and all these other things and said, you know, the real business that you want to be in is the internet service provider. You want to be on the other side of this transaction and, and not just the, uh, the, the application or the, the online travel agency. And he says, well, go, you know, go investigate what that means. And so I put together a business plan and said, you know what, I've been thinking about this and I think there's a real need here. And, um, you know, they supported me. My mom and dad supported me and, and helped get uh, the initial funding and things to go start an ISP. And where was that located? Oh, uh, geez, not far from where you are. Southwest Florida, Bonita Springs, Florida. <laughs> One of our claims to fame is Bonita Springs was unincorporated at the time. And we hosted uh, live online the first mayoral debate of uh, Bonita Springs, Florida for the first ever mayor of Bonita Springs, Florida. Very, uh, very important. To this day, one of the most critical elections of our lifetime. <laughs> oh, geez. yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, kids will read about it in the history books. Yeah. So, how did you get the financing to build this business? Yeah, so my uh, my parents are entrepreneurs at heart. My my mom was a nurse, um, <clears throat> and then went and left nursing to uh, help my dad when he started uh, video stores. And so, this was pre Blockbuster, and. Um, uh, so they always had that sort of entrepreneurial spirit. Like I said, they semi-retired down in Florida. And when I came with, with this idea, they said, okay, well, we'll, we'll help you get started. And, and so they gave me the initial loan uh, to, to start that business. And the unique thing about Bonita Springs at the time, this was shortly after the Telecommunications Act and, and sort of they broke up the various phone companies and they said, you have to uh, lease your lines back. And so there were these telecom islands 
that existed in Florida at the time. And unlimited internet access was just making its way. AOL was kind of just changing the game there a little bit on unlimited service. Um, but a lot of towns inside Florida could only call their jurisdiction locally and everything else then was this intralata call and it was very expensive and so on. And so what we decided to do was sort of connect those telecom islands, if you will, and offer um, unlimited internet to, to places that just couldn't do that before. They were racking up phone bills. And uh, if, if, if I can tell you a little story about this, um, the, <laughs> speaking of mayors, uh, I got a phone call one day from the mayor of LaBelle, Florida. <clears throat> and it's a little town, sort of more central Florida. And the mayor said, uh, uh, so how, how much can you support if I, if I brought you a couple hundred clients? And at the time, a couple hundred clients is huge uh, for, for my little business at the time. Could you get, could you turn them on, on in a day? And I said, well, sure. Yeah, I guess we could, but a couple hundred clients, Mayor, like that's, you know, that's quite a bit. She said, well, we've never had unlimited internet access. And if you can truly deliver that, we would get you those clients. I bet you know, everybody in the town would switch. And she lived up to her word. We, um, we got space in the Chamber of Commerce building to host the equipment. And um, she let us do that for free. We held a big barbecue uh, out there and invited the whole town to introduce them to the company. And sure enough, we got about 225 people that signed up for unlimited internet access. And it was, it was probably the biggest hit we had in terms of you know, one-day signups. It was a great day. That's amazing. That is such a cool story. I know LaBelle. Yeah, Florida. there's some. Sorry, please go ahead. Oh, well, I didn't have much to much to offer. Just I'd been there a couple of times because my uh, sister used to keep her horse out there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, so you know the area. Yeah. yeah, small town. There's a couple small towns like that with like the LaBelle and then, you know, there's like Mayaka and uh, Bonita Springs and Wellington. And, you know, yeah, it's a it's an interesting thing because most people like when you experience Florida, you go to like a beach, right? And all right. the population is within right. 10 miles of the sea, right? But then 90% of Florida is not not the ocean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. And there's, um, you know, we were all learning it together too. And, and I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I, I can recall so many conversations, you know, trying to visualize what was on someone's screen uh, as you're talking through, because you can't download a browser at the time. It was just you know, one, you're not connected probably. And two, if you are, it was so slow to download it. So we would be shipping CDs and oh my gosh, if someone called and had a Mac uh, that I, I mean, I had special cheat sheets on how to set someone up who had a Mac because that was just so foreign to, to me. It was one out of every 50 people who would call. Um, but yeah, we were all learning together at the time. And that wasn't so long ago when we think about it, this was 1997 and, you know, we're all learning together. And now here you and I are, uh, you know, having this, this beautiful video, uh, chat while we're recording this, uh, this podcast. And, uh, you know, I have what, 250 meg at my home now, uh, and we were fighting for 56 K it's, uh, it's, it's quite an accomplishment over the last 20 years. Yeah, I guess I actually remember. So my, my dad's, he would take me to work with them and his startup, they put, uh, these screens inside of golf carts. So you could, when you're at the pro pro shop and you're at the, uh, golf course, you could order food and a cart would know where you are GPS and bring it out to you. And this yeah. was in the, you know, mid nineties. And the most difficult thing is, you know, you'd have to fly a group of people out there to do maintenance on the carts and, you know, sure. All of that type of stuff. And then the pro shop people would sometimes have problems resetting it. So they ended up 
building this uh, software that was essentially like a PC anywhere type software because they were oh, the, okay. the engineers were so frustrated with walking them through these prompts and trying to see what was on their screen and not getting it that they ended up just building some software that allowed them to connect and screen share. And I just remember being, you know, see like seeing that happen and seeing them build the software and then watching them actually go from being on the phone to staring at their computer screen, seeing what the other person's screen was. And it was like a frame every three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it, it's, it's been incredible what we've been able to do and it's what's kept me very, very interested, uh, just in the space in general. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't have thought, and, and it's funny that I recall the conversation now, but it was probably one of those throwaway conversations when one of my dad's friends was over and I was, you know, in high school sometime and, and, and sort of just said, Hey, Chris, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I have no idea. And he said, well, it should, you should do something in the telecommunications world or something with computers uh, because these two areas are, are just exploding. And he was a video game tester at the time, which was just super cool to have a dad's friend be a video game tester. But, you know, I think about it now and that was very, uh, uh, you know, he was, he was sort of forecasting my future a little bit because, uh, you know, you, you take those two industries together and you get the internet and, you know, I've, I've been involved in it, uh, you know, since, uh, since, since infancy basically. And so what was the conclusion of that business? Do you still have it? Did you sell it? Uh, we sold it. Um, <clears throat> so it was, there was a company doing roll-ups uh, on behalf of uh, Earthlink. And so this, it was actually a Canadian company that was doing roll-ups. And so they were buying, you know, small ISPs, local ISPs uh, like ours, you know, sub 10,000 subscriber kind of things. And they went and did a big roll-up strategy and we were part of that roll-up strategy. And then they ended up, uh, I think, flipping that to, to Earthlink was their eventual strategy. But uh, that really launched my you know, career. I mean, I, it, was, it was four years and that's what helped me get grounded sort of in business. Obviously, you know, my parents being entrepreneurs, we helped out at the video stores and things like that. But this was really where payroll became you know, my thing to worry about. And, and, uh, what do you do when a customer can't pay their bill, but you know, they're a good person because you talk to them and, and you start to get to know them as you help them troubleshoot. And, you know, do you give this guy a free month, uh, you know, just to kind of get him through hard times and all that was very humbling and just taught me a lot about not just business, but just about, you know, how you serve your customer and, and what are the real important things. And so what projects are you working on today? Yeah, so I really, really like the analytics side of uh, of the business, and uh, so when I could stay close to uh, analytics and more from an operational standpoint, those are the type of projects that I get really, really interested in. So as digital transformation came about, uh, what I really liked about it is is trying to find those opportunities where, if you think about a Venn diagram here, and the three circles that create the Venn are customer experience the uh, digital transformation itself, just, you know, sort of the softwareification of, of whatever is, is going on in the industry. <clears throat> and then finally, the operation side of the business, um, finding myself in the center uh, is, is really the, the stuff that keeps me interested because the operational side of it can be a real challenge. But what I like about it is it requires you to be engaged in the business all the time. And it inquires you to really get down to the granular pieces of how uh, the technology interplays 
with other pieces of technology. The revenue side is fantastic, obviously, but when you're in that operation side, it forces you to learn every bit of the business. So I try to find myself uh, in opportunities where those three things converge. And so this, this new company is called Vitra? Uh, Vitria. Yeah. Vitria. So, yeah. So Vitria, it's, uh, I've, I've been uh, with, uh, with the company for about three and a half years. And uh, it's a company that has some great, great, great roots. Uh, they grew up in the 90s. Uh, the founding team of uh, Joe May Chang and, and Dale Skeen are still involved with the business, which is great. Um, and they've gone through several iterations of the business. And this last one, I was brought in really to uh, help them point this, this technology that they had had developed and, and honed and the skills that they had from this engineering team with some great, great tenure and really pointed at a direction, you know, formulate the go-to-market strategy. And so when I started looking at what we had here, you know, I realized that they've built up 20 year history on being able to handle uh, high volumes of data, complex event processing, you know, was in their roots and sure being able to handle uh, a big variety of data, you know, all that, that formula that goes into big data and analytics, they had the piece parts there and then they had a lot of the workflow automation. And so when you tie that together, you know, it starts to look like the, uh, the component parts for, uh, what we see now in the AI ops space or the artificial intelligence, you know, powered operation space, or some people call it autonomous operation space. And so they had the piece parts there, you know, we had the components there and we had the engineering team there and it was really just um, pointing it in the right direction. And it's, it's truly a case where the sum is greater than the, uh, or the, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, right. In, in, in this situation here. So um, that's what I've been spending the last three and three and a half years doing. And we, we formally launched the product. Uh, you know, just at the end of last year. And uh, so far we've had you know, great early success in a, in a nascent industry of AI ops. What's the difference between like, or, like AI ops and DevOps? Like, how, how do you differentiate between those? Yeah. So in the DevOps space, uh, actually the two come together so, so nicely as well, um, just because the DevOps space causes so much trouble. <laughs> uh, so, uh, the, you know, the, the DevOps space is... Um, is uh, it starts to bring in uh, some of this um, CICD life cycle that you start to see, right? This, this continuous integration, continuous development, uh, and continuous deployment, I should say, um, that, that we're seeing um, come out of a lot of more things turning into software, right? Whether that's your infrastructure uh, as a service or whatever it might be, we're starting to see a lot more CICD and what that causes is, is quite often a lot more change than uh, we're used to. And so when you look at change, whether that's um, say deploying a new container because you're pushing some, uh, an update of code or something like that, uh, that can have unintended consequences. And what you see when you're trying to deliver an application in say a cloud environment, um, there's a lot of moving parts that are talking to each other, right? You have a, a host, uh, which is, you know, where the software is. Uh, generally, you have a client, which may be on a mobile phone, which may be on cable modem, which may be in a browser or somewhere. And you're trying to connect those things over a really, really complex network. And it resides on some virtual infrastructure, which is underpinned by some physical infrastructure. So you have a lot of layers and a lot of moving parts. And sometimes when you just push one little small change, you can disrupt the customer experience. Tying back to that Venn diagram I was talking about. So in the CIC 
to the DevOps space, you're pushing change. You're kind of rapidly, you know, sort of getting updates out there. You're putting new features out. You can, you know, much, much more quickly deliver a new uh, service or application to your customers, but you could break things at the same time. And so AI ops is really taking the signal from those different layers that I'm talking about and trying to fuse them together to really understand where the root cause may be. And to really understand when I pushed that change, um, did that disrupt the customer experience? Now can people not close out their shopping cart transaction? So the, the two of them converge actually quite well. That's interesting. I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. The, so so the, the, the purpose of the software is to understand if the customer experience is interrupted post-deployment. Uh, post-deployment or just because of a failure. So, so right now, uh, in, the, in the normal sense, in the traditional sense, in the IT operation space, uh, you have a very siloed way that you're looking at your uh, service delivery. There's a team that's focused on, is my infrastructure okay, right? Do I have to replace a hard drive because it failed? Is a CPU spinning out of control? Am I overutilizing memory? Is my IO wait too long? Things like that. Then you have another team that's really, really focused on application performance, right? Are my API calls um, successful? Um, are my uh, exits of my transactions happening in the right uh, timely, timeliness and, and things like that? And then you have finally a team that's, that's focused on what's happening from a network perspective. Do I have congestions through, through a switch or a load balancer or a router? Am I dropping packets somewhere or something like that? And they're each independently monitoring those pieces. And when something breaks, you get a ton of these alarm storms or event storms that happen. Uh, and each of them are sort of in their silos trying to understand why am I getting this alarm or an event? Is it part of a bigger thing? Do I need to take some action? I better create a ticket or get someone engaged on it. And then finally, it gets to a point where everybody is together going, hey, wait a second, that might be related to me and that might be related to me. And you know, the congestion that I'm seeing on the port is because of these memory exception errors that were because of this, you know, bad code that was running. And then finally the problem gets resolved, right? And the same at the, at the time, you know, you stripe it across the customer experience and you see frustration start to build. I can't use the application the way that I want to. Uh, maybe you engage with customer support or maybe you just quit and, and go somewhere else and find a, find a competitor. Right. And so that could be caused by change in the DevOps space, tying it back around, or it could just be caused by some failure that's happening, you know, in that network layer and in that infrastructure layer. So the purpose of our software is to detect what's going on, to correlate across those different layers, to analyze and discover what is the probable root cause, and then to get that to the right action, whether that's um, prescribing a automation uh, run some script, back out a change, reboot some device, deploy a new, open up a new port, you know, whatever it might be, or get it to the person who can fix it, right? And get it to the right person. And so that's really the purpose of the software. That's pretty cool. I like, I like the, the fact that it's focused on customer experience too, right? Because that's so important because just like you said, if something's not working, I'm clicking a button trying to make a purchase on my phone and it's like, I can't buy it from here. It's not working. And I just will go somewhere else. Like, I don't really care why it's not working. It's like, that's, that's over on them. I just need to do this. And I'm trying to complete my checklist and I've got eight other things. I, I need to move on. So I'm going to, and, and that, that happens. It happens from time to time. 
And I can see it could be costly for a company. Well, absolutely. And we're, we're trying to change the conversation inside of the operations teams as well. Uh, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of the times you hear things like five nines of availability, you know, which means that the, the system has to function 99.999% of the time or things like um, throughput or things like, um, you know, are all the lights green <laughs> on the particular piece of equipment. And we're really um, at Vitria with our via AI ops uh, platform or application, we're really trying to change that conversation, change the way that the operations folks speak. And you really want the first thing that they're thinking about is, are my customers having a bad experience right now? Is this red light or is this, um, this failure of this component, is this impacting the customer experience? And that's really what they should be first and foremost focused on. Because a lot of times there's resiliency and there's noise and there's all kinds of things that happen in a network. Um, you know, a hard drive fails, that's fine. It's virtual. And something else is going to pick up its workload. But you really want to be focused on, is my customer experience negatively impacted right now? And if so, what's causing it and how the heck do I fix it as fast as possible? And that's really that, that focus change we want to make. And I agree, right? It's a great place to start. It's like the beginning. So I'm curious to know, so inside of VIA, that's the name of the product, correct? Correct, correct. So you have to, in order to tell if it's not working, you have to know what the working scenario looks like. So you define the customer experience inside of VIA, and then it's monitoring right. that it's operating and running correctly. And then if something goes incorrectly, it's alerting and connected to all these other services to figure out how this incorrect or how the, how the failure happened. Right, right. So the one of the differentiations is, you know, we're not just looking for these binary events on off and things. So there's, there's been a, that's a, that's a solved space, in my opinion, that, that monitoring siloed monitoring space is a solved space. We're going beyond uh, event correlation. Those are being known as an event, right? Uh, some threshold was crossed or something. It's an event or an alert. We're going beyond the event correlation business, which was a, a huge business several years ago, which said, hey, all of these events are related. Okay, let's eliminate that noise. Now we're bringing in time series data as well. And we're generating our own anomalies and our own uh, uh, events, if you will, from that type of data as well. So we're not just seeing that a CPU cross some threshold. We're not just seeing that an API time cross some threshold. We're actually baselining the normal condition, right? So we're baselining what the login rate would be. That's from a customer experience standpoint. We're baselining what the login failure rate could be. They happen. We're baselining how many times someone gets their password rejected. We're baselining things like how many times you buffer when you're watching contents or is your bit rate downshifted because you have network congestion. Those sort of baseline the customer experience. And we understand things like seasonality that occur at eight o'clock at night is different than eight o'clock in the morning. Saturday is different than Tuesday night. All of those things go into really, really complex analytics that have to uh, stripe across a, you know, billions of dimensions at times. And so once we can understand that, we get that baseline condition. And that sometimes for us is the starting point. When we see a change in that baseline condition, we take a top-down approach. Now we can drill really deep to find if there's some CPU that's gone wonky that, that might be causing this problem. 
versus right now, you're trying to gobble all the data at once and you're trying to look for every CPU spike, every memory spike, and trying to make a decision of whether that's important or not. We've really flipped the problem on its head and we start from the customer experience. I really like that. I think that's smart. I especially like that this concept of like the dynamic baseline or like the, the intelligent baseline because one of the biggest frustrations for me as an engineer, you know, scaling was understanding and in, in the tools when we were setting them up, you know, they would say, you know, here's enter the threshold and there would be a little question box and you'd hover over it. And it was like a standard, it's like, well, who are you talking to? Are you talking to like Salesforce size company? Are you talking to me? Right. Like, you know, this tool can be used on shared hosting environments. It can be used like, a, it can be used across an entire spectrum of use cases. Uh, I don't know what this threshold, I don't know when I should be alerted. That's what you're supposed to tell me. <laughs> well, that's right. And, and, and what you see, and it sounds like you've, you know, you've been at the, at the console doing these things. Um, and you look at your, your trend line and you say, well, what's the highest point that, that looks normal? And I'm going to set it somewhere above that. And, and uh, so if it goes somewhere above that, I want to know about it. Well, what happens when uh, that spike, you know, only occurs once a day and every other time you're sort of living below that spike, but you have something that's between those two points and it persists for a long period of time. You will miss that. And so by dynamically understanding what those baselines, by pulling that seasonality out, we can get down. Let me give you an example here. Um, we go down to the granular dimension level with these metrics. So I don't just want to know when login failures are occurring at a higher than normal rate. I wanna know when login failures for customers who are on a Roku device uh, in Georgia who've authenticated from you know, behind a known IP address, right? So now we've taken the millions and millions and millions of customers who are logging in and we've narrowed it down to a population of maybe just a couple thousand. And we're looking at their individual behavior because then you can pull out those very nuanced issues that make up your baseline. So if we chunk apart that baseline, even to those granular dimensions and combinations of dimensions, that's when you can pull out that real customer impact. Otherwise you're going to miss it. It's all going to be lost in the noise. So, you know, I like that you're an entrepreneur as well as a technologist. I'm curious to know, like, how do you sell into the company? Are you selling into like user experience groups? Are you selling into DevOps? Like, you know, technology engineering, SVP of engineering, like how do you present the value prop and get your foot in the door so that people can see this technology and understand how it can help them? Yeah, great question. And, and, and you know, part of it is the, the entrepreneurial side, I think helps a bit because you need to understand the business. And, and you really need to understand the business. And, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of similarities between uh, a bank and uh, a cable company and a gaming company and things like that. There's a, there's a lot of similarities in the way that the companies are structured and <clears throat> all the component parts that have to go together to deliver that service. So you need to get an understanding of that. And then obviously it can help if you get an understanding of, of you know, that particular subject matter. Um, <clears throat> but what I like about via is we have a lot of entry points because we don't have to be monolithic. We're very non-disruptive in the deployment. So we can start with the DevOps team and say, look, 30 to 50% of problems on the customer experience are generally related to change. 
Okay. And it's a, it's a reported fact that we see over and over and over again, it's unintended consequences of change, right? And it could drive 30, 50% of those experience issues. So we can go to the DevOps team and say, we can solve this one use case for you. And if you're already using certain tools, you're already using Chef and Puppet and others for automation. You're already using, um, you know, you're, you're, you're using a Kubernetes in, a, uh, in an environment to, to manage your containers. Great. We plug right in to those technologies. We're not creating this new workflow for you. We're just going to plug into your workflow and we're going to make it more efficient. Or you can go over to customer experience side and say, hey, look, you're looking at your big board right there about new signups and uh, how much consumption is happening and so on. Uh, when you see the blips, you're, you now uh, are, are wanting to understand why. And that's a dynamic that we're seeing change. And we're bringing that buyer, that, that business owner, uh, onto the same page as the person in IT who's trying to fix that you know, failed CPU. And so we can start from the customer experience folks and say, see that blip right there? We can help your team understand why and we can get it resolved for you faster. Or of course, you can really go into the IT operations or the network operations teams. So we have multiple entry points where we integrate with <clears throat> existing technology, existing workflows, and then we can expand to other use cases. That's pretty cool. I'm, I'm kind of getting this concept of like AI ops analytics, right? Yeah. Because once you, right. once you connect into the pipeline, because I'm familiar with all of those things like deployment tools, and, and it seems that there's more and more services that are now plugging in. Like I was, the other day I was talking to a security company and, and they do like static code analysis from a security perspective. They've got like the whole library. You are already doing yeah. static code analysis to make sure that it met like your developer criteria for how code should be styled. But now you can also use that same technology to the, go check for security. And then there's all of these things being plugged in and it makes sense that there would emerge a utility that would plug in that would capture data on all of this and develop analytics and allow you to filter and sort and search and do all of that type of stuff. That's pretty cool. Is your, is your model set up to where developers can go and like install this into their pipeline and start gathering analytics right away? Or do they go through? Yeah, it's, um, it is, it's the, we have integrations with hundreds of different tools uh, like you were, you were mentioning there as well as, you know, just grabbing, raw syslog or you know tapping into a kinesis feed and aws or whatever it is and just capturing raw data like that as well and so the the turn ups really quickly i mean we deploy in minutes right as, as as you'd expect a lot of things do today um and you can start seeing value as soon as the you know the the data is to a point where you have enough of it to to be meaningful or not and so sometimes it takes uh, if there's historical data and you can grab a few weeks, well, great, your models are trained right out of the bat. You know, if not, your models will get better and better and better. We bootstrap them such that right out of the box, you're going to start to get some impact. You're going to start to get some benefits. But after, you know, three weeks time or so on, those models just get better and better and better. And the, the approach that we take is, um, you know, we're not just trying to be, let me, let me uh, try to make a parallel to when big data first became a thing and Hadoop was first becoming a thing. You know, there was this rise in desire to hire data scientists and, and there still is. And I'm glad I love it. Some of the best people I work with are data scientists. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun, but you know, the, the there was this uh, utopian sort of thought that if I get all the data, 
and I put it all in the same place and then I point some data scientists to it, magic is going to come out the back end and, and problems with this is wonderful. All the problems are going to be solved. We're never going to lose a customer again. And, uh, and this is what we need to do. And I see a bit of that with, uh, I see a little bit of that with analytics as well, which is like, let's analyze all the data in real time is, is, you know, as fast as we can, as much as we can. Uh, but a lot of times that just creates more sort of noise than you want. So going back to, you know, like you said, security doing basically just, you know, sort of uh, code checks and things like that. That is information that may come to play when it's necessary, but maybe not all the time. You know, you, you may not need sort of a live stream of some of this kind of stuff. You may want to keep it and get to it when you need to. So developers can plug it in. They can have it there. We're going to capture stuff at that experience layer. But then what we allow you to do is get to that raw data as fast as possible as you need to. So we're going to tell you, this is important. You're having a customer problem right now. We think it might be related to a security breach. Here is the information we have available based on the security breach. We think this is the root cause. And if you know the really smart person that needs to get down to the log file or down to the code level, just follow the path and we're going to get you right there as fast as possible. But we don't need to necessarily be analyzing all that stuff all the time. It, it, I hope the, the point's coming across. It is, yeah. I mean, I remember about two years ago, I was talking to Yazir. He's a CTO over at uh, Williams Sonoma. And he was sharing with me these stories about these concepts of data lakes turning into data swamps because yes, they, yes, <laughs> they don't yes, have intention. Yes. And, and my big takeaway from him was this discussion he had with me about uh, focusing on the outcome and working backwards from the outcome. And if you know exactly what you want and then you use, you, you go grab those pieces of data in order to sort of like test that hypothesis or figure out if that's the correct thing. And then you just keep going down that list versus he was noticing this trend within like you know, the industry where people were just being obsessed with collecting the data. Like they, everyone turned into like a TV show hoarders or something, right? Yes. Where they just want all the data in one place because it's better than not being in one place. And it's like, well, what's the, what's the purpose of it? Yeah. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely, it sounds like he and I would get along uh, uh, quite well, but yeah, and, and our purpose, you know, is that customer experience and, and I know I'm sort of beating on this, but I think that's so key right now. It's such a differentiator in the market when technology has allowed us to provide very, very similar products. Sometimes the differentiator is that customer experience. And, um, you know, so that is our purpose. And so when we go out seeking to make that the best for our customers, customers, um, that's our purpose. And then what we understand is great. The first things we need is this. And then sometimes we need this and then very minimally we'll need this, but I'm going to get you to it when you need it. I'm not going to waste resources, time, energy, dollars, make a bunch of noise just because it's available to us. If people want to go use it, how would they do that? They want to go experience it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So we're, um, you know, we, we love to show off uh, our stuff. And so, you know, obviously you just, just uh, come to our website at vitria.com and you'll see availability to get demos. You'll see availability to do pilots um, and you can, you can get there and, and you'll get hooked up with, um, with some of our folks who, uh, who can get this launched for you really quickly and, and let you stretch its legs a little bit. Excellent. From the, from the business side of things, I was interested to know more about, like I was reading, and I saw that the company was private, public, and then back to private. How right. did how did that happen? Yeah. So so the um, the initial public offering was um, at a great time. It was um, you know in the in the late nineties as, as as you may have read there. 
Um, and, and we had a very, very successful go in the uh, BPM space. Uh, and, you know, we were probably one of the founding companies of, of that space. And uh, that was a, that was a great, great product for us. Businessware was a great, great product for us. Um, but as that industry matured and commoditized, uh, the founders actually came back and took the company private. Uh, because they saw the vision of the t technology components that were there. They saw the vision of the team that they had been really, really successful with before. And they said, look, we're, we're going to go into a place where we're going to kind of go back into stealth mode here a little bit. And we're going to come out the other end and we're going to participate in this big data analytics space. And so they took the company private to allow themselves to focus on that. And um, after a few years of development, you know, we first launched as a, as a platform, VIA as a platform versus VIA as an AI ops application. And we got uh, initial user base on there. We did some very large scale deployments for big retail companies, big utility companies, telcos and things. And the common thread that we were able to pull out was operational intelligence. And now what is sort of turned into AI ops, that space was, was very new at the time. And, and then we realized, you know what, this, uh, the, the platform business, um, it's, there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, competition in that space. And there is absolute white space in the AI ops space here for what we do around the focus on customer experience, around our ability to go beyond just event correlation and consolidation and bring in the time series um, uh, analysis, bring in the anomaly detection piece and really look across the entire ecosystem. So we did that, we brought in some explainable AI and we said, let's launch this as an application. And uh, that, that's, that's the sole focus of the company at this point. And so you, weren't one of the original founders of this company, correct? Correct. Correct. I joined them. Uh, I joined them about three and a half years ago. The founding team did come back. And so it is the original founding team. Uh, Joe May is the CEO and Dale as the CTO uh, invited me in, you know, the three and a half years ago to, to go on this journey to, to really put this go to market strategy in place. And so you as a, as a person, what, why, why not start your own company again? Like what, what caused you to want to come work and, and do the job here? Yeah, a lot of it was speed. Um, I, when, when I first um, sat down with, uh, with Dale and Joe May, I, you know, we got into talking about the product really, really quickly, kind of what they had. And um, they invited in one of their senior uh, engineers here and we started playing around. And I, I, it, I, it sounds a little ridiculous now as part of an interview process. But I said, well, I got some data. If I gave you that, do you think we could maybe do something really quick? And I ended up spending the day at the office with one of these senior engineers and we had a prototype built by the end of the day. And that's when I said, okay, I got to do this. Uh, I mean, just the speed at which um, the technology assets that were available to me at Vitria would allow us to, to get to the end state um, was really exciting. And, and it just made the decision easy for me. I feel you like being able to work with people who have the product, they're there, they have the energy, they have the speed, they have the resources. It's like a very attractive opportunity, especially if they're going to empower you to just run with it. Yeah, absolutely. And they've given me nothing but support. It's been, it's been a really great journey. So from a leadership perspective, how do, how do you view leadership? Like when people talk about it, cause it's such an ambiguous term, right? Everybody's discussing it. Like what pops into your head when people start, start thinking about leadership? Yeah. Uh, two, uh, two words, uh, empathy 
and uh, enrollment. And the, the empathy piece is, um, you know, candidly something I've had to learn uh, over time and I've sort of matured into uh, more. Um, and it's really, uh, you know, you have a, a vision in, in your head and a direction you want to go. And, you know, you have to really empathize with the different personalities that you're working with. And when you come into a company that has a lot of history, like, uh, like Vitria did, you know, to, um, to go to a team and say, hey, this is the way that I think we want to point the company and this is the direction we want to go, to remember that they've, you know, they've made investments in, in technologies and directions and other things there. And, you know, it's sort of stepping back for a second and understanding that, that you need to now converge to that other word I used, enroll. You know, you need to enroll these guys in this first, but you need to first understand their perspective. You need to first understand, hey, what have you been doing here for the last five years, 10 years or so that you've been at the company? What's been successful for you? Maybe we can tweak this concept. You can certainly help me strengthen this concept. Um, and, you know, that, that's leadership is, is, is not just coming in and saying, this is it. This is the way we're going to do it. But it's really, really putting yourselves in a position to open yourselves up to the accomplishments and the ideas and the, and the personal you know, positions that these other folks are in and how they can help you achieve that vision. So, so that's, that's one big part. And the enrollment part is when you do lock in on that, you, know, you, wanna, you want these folks to go on the journey with you. Uh, you don't want to pull them along. You want them to, you know, you want to be in their wake. You want to get them so excited and enrolled in what the possibilities are and enrolled in what the end game is that you're riding their wake uh, instead of the other way around. And that's one of my favorite parts about it is I try not to do it. I tell myself when I'm to not be too much of a, of sort of a cheerleader when I get in some of these meetings. And then I find I've just been talking for 15 minutes about nothing, but how excited I am about, you know, this new feature that we just rolled out or something. And, you know, it's just that, that, you know, you got to keep people up to speed. You have to, sorry, let, let me just grind, let me just ground this in part of the conversation that we had before about the IT staff who may not know that that red light means that people can't, close a transaction, people can't book a flight, people can't log into their video application. It's the same thing. The engineer who you're asking to build a feature for you, they need to know why. They need to understand what, how is my customer gonna use it? How is this gonna improve our product and what is the use case at the other end? Oh wow, they can find this thing faster and that means that their customers, you know, their revenue will go up, whatever it might be. That's the enrollment piece that you need to bring down and across all levels of the organization. And, and that's when I think we can get in the wake of the organization versus dragging them along with you. I like it. And as you're describing this, it's what I've seen talking with all of these different leaders is some of the best companies that have the best cultures, leadership, things like that. It seems like they have a steady stream of people coming there because of their reputation to want to grow themselves and become better leaders. And at the same time, they have the leaders leaving constantly. And they, and it's because it's like they have this flow and they've created a process or like a system, this environment where people just come through to do their best work. Right. And right. then they, they're constantly bringing up people, learning, maturing, growing, doing their best work, and then going on to the next thing. And it's, it was interesting because I first started with this, uh, you know, from like a 
I was talking to some HR people and it was all about retain, retain, retain. How do right, we keep them from right. leaving? And then like, you know, you're watching a movie and you're like, if you love it, you got to let it go. <laughs> it's like, how do these ideas <laughs> mix together? Right. And it, for me, it, it's, I really, I think Walmart labs or Walmart or Walmart labs, one of those, I had just noticed like a lot of people I was talking to were there like 10, 15 years ago. And so, and, and there were people that were consistently impressing me. One of them actually to touch back to it was uh, Yazir from Williams-Noma. And I, so I went back and asked him because I had him on the show. And then a year later, I went out and gave a talk to his like whole, whole uh, organization, IT organization. And so I was asking him and he's like, yeah, there was just a bunch of great people. There was a bunch of, you know, excellent culture. And that environment is just like producing great people now. And so I'm always asking myself, you know, how do, how do I help create an environment that yields great people versus an environment that tries to hold on out of fear of, of leaving? And, and that's just a question I'm constantly asking myself and learning from. Yeah. And, and it is, I think it's a continuous journey, right? Because um, going back to the empathy part, people's needs change uh, o- over time and, and gosh, like, you know, everything we're going through now with, with COVID and, and how much that's changed, just working environments and working from home, people's needs change and, and, you know, great companies uh, can, can understand those can uh, adapt quickly to them and, you know, can say, look, I, I understand what my company, what my, what my employees are going through right now. So, you know, how do we change maybe some of the policies that we have? How do we change some of the working environments that we have to best, you know, support and lift up uh, our employees? And, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the, one of the easiest things you can do, but a lot of times not all the companies do that. Well, it's, it's hard. It's easy to snap back at somebody. It's hard to sure. deliver sure. something in a palatable way or a way that, uh, you know, doesn't lose the relationship, right? Like I heard this one uh, quote once and it was, you can win the argument and lose the relationship. And yes. I was just like, whoa, that was so much truth for me. Cause there was a, a long part of my life where I just cared about proving that I was right because I was right, but you can lose the relationship <laughs> and That's it's not right. about that. And so, you know, there's, it's interesting to like, look at yourself on a timeline of the different mindsets you've, you've created or you've experienced over the course of, of your career. But uh, I'm always, the thing that gives me sort of like comfort there is I'm consistently getting better. <laughs> I'm not well, going good. And, 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 you know, you need to check in with yourself like that as well. And, and I think if you can have an honest discussion with yourself, I think that's really important um, to continue to do that and, and measure yourself. I was, um, uh, I was, I was, it was talking to one of, um, uh, one of my classmates. I'm, I'm currently going through an MBA program. And I was talking with one of my classmates the other day and he mentioned he was on a, a podcast or not a podcast. It was a video conference or something with um, Magic Johnson. We can throw that in. And, and an interesting takeaway that he had is he said that Magic Johnson does a SWOT analysis of himself twice a year. 
you know, and, and he checks in with himself constantly about how to be a, a better person. But I just thought that takeaway, you know, resonated with what you just said is, is, you know, he, this is, this is something he does on a regular basis. He checks in with himself and making sure I'm making improvements. And, you know, I think it's a great practice and we, we certainly have to sit back and ground ourselves. Nothing grounded me like having kids. And then as my kids get older and you can communicate with them and as my kids are going through the struggles they're having, wow, did, did, did I learn a lot in the last six months just about, um, you know, what, how, how, how kids process all of this stuff and what it means for them not to be at school. And, uh, it's in, and that gives you an opportunity to sit back and check in with yourself. Yeah. What ages? Uh, 11 and eight. So a middle schooler and a, a third grader. And, you know, at first they, they would, you would think that, Oh, this is great. We we're not going to school. It's, it's really fun. And boy, oh boy, you know, they miss it. And the frustrations of technology and, and everything else, you know, sort of makes you realize what do you talk about at dinner is, is a bit different. Uh, in, instead of how was school, how was this? We're kind of done talking about that a little bit. Let's just, you know, how are you? Um, and, and it's, it's been an interesting shift that we've seen because just the nature of everything that's happening. Yeah. I have a, three-year-old girl and a one and a half year old son. All right. Uh, it's, it, it go, I know everyone has said this to you. It goes by fast. And that's what makes it great. Like, I'm like, thank you. Those are words of <laughs> yeah. consoling me. No, it, it's definitely getting easier. I'd say like, it, it feels like it's getting easier, you know, once they can feed themselves and walk around and go to the bathroom by themselves and start forming five word sentences so they can kind of tell you what they want you know, it's definitely, it's wild. Yeah. It's, it's a crazy ride. And, and it only gets better. I can tell you, I mean, it only, every age has its great pieces and it only gets better. I was, um, uh, the, the presidential debate and I'm not going to get into politics for sure, but the presidential debate for my daughter, one, she had a journalism class, which I just thought this is cool. It's not just reading, writing, arithmetic, like you have special classes now. And, um, you know, and, and she had to sit and part of her project was to take notes and, and come up with a thesis or come up with some statement at the end of this. And, um, that was such an interesting experience, not just because of, you know, tying it into politics and what's happening now, but just the fact that, my gosh, you were just forming five word sentences and now you're forming an opinion on a presidential election. And um, boy, it, it happens fast. And you look over to that and, and that just makes you really proud and, and just, you know, again, it, it, it grounds you. Did you catch uh, on Netflix the Social Dilemma documentary? I did. How do you feel? You have, you have kids, they're getting to that age. Like what, how did that, did it change anything for you about how you think about it? Well, so it, ex, it excelled being, being home online school for them accelerated the use of technology quite a bit. Um, you know, they're on teams and their, their teachers actually, you know, strongly advocate for them. Like email is so ancient and who uses that? Uh, anymore. And, and, you know, so communicate with me on remind, communicate with me on teams. And so um, while we have been like, Hey, we're not going to let them on social media for this, you know, this sort of normal discussions you have with yourself as a parent, um, it's just what it is. So they, they, now they have email addresses. Now they have technology that they're always connected to. And now they are on social media. Now, again, it's, it's, it's a different form of it through school, but they are. They're with 600 or so classmates and they can all communicate with each other. And, and all of that happens so much more quickly than we were um, expecting. 
So we didn't get that opportunity, I think, to sort of, you know, go through what's the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it. And so what we're doing is, is, uh, uh, is really just trying to see how they're engaging with it and, and, you know, and, and see, uh, see those parts where, where you may have to think about a different strategy, but for right now, we're letting them sort of learn on their own a little bit, but the social dilemma, watching some of those being in the technology space, like you and I are, you know, maybe some of the shock isn't as much as, is watching it with somebody who's not in the technology space. We're kind of nodding our head going, yeah, we knew they were doing that. Yeah. We knew they were doing that. So perhaps that's why we were, we were planning on be a little bit more guarded, you know, with our kids with social media, but, um, it's not going away, right? It's going to morph. It's going to change. Um, it's not going away. There's a lot of positive that's come out of it. There's a lot of good. If we look at, uh, the Arab spring and, and, and movements like that, that have popped up and been enabled by social media, you know, there's a lot of real positive things that have happened. And so I think a part of it is just teaching responsibility and if you can take that, you know, concept of bullying in the classroom and you can bring it digitally, you know, that that's going to go a long way. So there's just a lot of things that um, we can do to uh, be mindful of how it's being used. But I think it's silly to sort of, you know, think that it's going to go away because I, I just don't see that happening. Yeah. At first, I was, when they were talking about how the girls specifically, uh, the females with like those social interactions and how right. they're using it uh, versus right. how the boys were using it. It was, you know, with me having a daughter, I was like, my first reaction is obviously just like fear, right? Like, oh no, never letting her have that period. Yeah. And then, you know, looking at the graphs that they showed of, of how it was impacting, you know, the ch children and things like that. But then after sort of like thinking about it and mulling it over, I said, you know, parenting, being a good involved parent is just going to become more important. Like, you know, your kids can be going through this stuff. They can be getting bullied and you can either not be involved in their lives and not even know that they're getting bullied, or you can be coaching them through their ups and downs and, you know, understanding who they are and, you know, stepping in when you need to step in and letting them fall when you need to let them learn and grow because the environment's definitely not going to go away, right? right? So it's not like this messaging environment or this connection environment is going to disappear or be a fad like a like a, like if you were back in the day, right? You had the kids, they were listening to a certain song or album. You could take that album away. There was no iTunes. <laughs> there was no internet. They sure. just couldn't connect into that source anymore if you didn't like That's what right. it was doing to them. But now they can connect. They can get your VPN. They can get around stuff and they can do whatever they want if they have enough d desire to figure it out. And us being technologists, we, we know that to be true, right? That's so right. It's, it's just going to put a premium on the importance of being an involved parent. And, you know, maybe you know, people, you know, partners, uh, husbands, wives type deal, like maybe they don't work two jobs, right? Or maybe sure. one works less so that they can spend more time with the kids and being involved as a parent because it's just, uh, I see I see a lot of chaos happening in the world. And I and I and when I see that, I'm like, okay. And then I see some people sort of like giving up and being like, oh, it's, and I'm like, no, you have to, it's just putting more importance on, being an, a responsible individual, which is, you know. Yeah, you have to double down at that point. You can't yeah. walk away. You got you to gotta double down on the interactions. And, and you said it there is um, 
uh, being there is the most important thing. Uh, and then the, the second piece that my wife and I you know, certainly push is um, really teaching them to be strong, independent people. And, you know, that goes for their, them having responsibility to turn their homework in and them having responsibility to, you know, if they have the ability to, to redo the assignment and get a better grade, to want to do that and redo that assignment. It's teaching that independence, which I think will pay off in spades because I think it's all related. Uh, if they, if you can teach them that independent thought and, and that empowerment, they will, they will push that forward into their communications on social media, into their decision-making as they get older. And I think they'll leave, you know, our house uh, in a stronger position to, to face a really, really hyper-connected uh, world. And, and so, yeah, those are, those are two big things. One, we're there, we're engaged, we know what's going on. Um, but two, really teaching them independence uh, is, is, is an empowerment is, is the biggest lessons that we can do. Yeah. And um, I just learned so much too. It's like all the leadership lessons and things that, you know, when you see it, it's like, it's one thing for it to happen at work, right? Because it'll happen and you'll have that experience. But when you have to deal with these extremely emotional, you know, animals (laughs) at your house and that are hungry and they don't understand that the food's coming in five minutes, it just, for me, it was just like rapid fire. It's like every month, you know, new, like every interaction, essentially I'm like, Oh, I get it now. I just reinforcing these uh, understandings of, of how people work because you're just, it's like a, it's like if I were to take a computer person like today, right. A lot of us write software and we don't, you know, do the hardware down, down low. Right. And we're just sitting up in the stack. And if you try to go download today, it's near impossible because all of these chips and everything, they're cut with lasers and it's, they're so (laughs) microscopic. But if you take someone back to like the fifties, when the computers were like the size of a room and you could show them the tubes and stuff, and they're like the two or three components interacting, it's like very, very simple. And so I feel like there's an analogy back to like the kids, when you see the humans at these very early stages with these very simple drives and desires, it's really easy to understand how they work. But when you get them when they're way more mature and complex and advanced, it's like, what is going on under the hood? (laughs) What software update did they get? They, they, need some some via software to track back some of those poor user experiences in that human <laughs> <laughs> yeah what happened that broke what is the root cause of this of this behavior yeah yeah well if that comes out i'm in uh, i'm gonna be a uh, i'm gonna be an early buyer of that for sure we'll get you uh we'll get you to make a via app for the Neuralink app store once that thing comes out <laughs> that's right that's right i like it i like it it'll be my next venture Chris, this is fantastic. Is there anything we want to get out there to the world that we didn't cover yet? Um, no, I think this was, uh, I think this was great. I mean, honestly, we're, um, we're, we're there, like I said, we love to show off our stuff. Um, so, you know, come give us that opportunity. I think that's, that's what we want to put out there is, um, if, uh, if, if you're a company that is just laser focused on the customer experience and you think that's your differentiator, then, then we have like minds and, and we should talk. And we'll put the website in the show notes, but for people who don't have it, how did, is it your website slash demo? Yeah, it's just vitria.com, V-I-T-R-I-A.com. That's it. Amazing. Boom. We did it, man. We made a podcast. You feel good? All right. Yeah, that was great. Thanks. Excellent. And you have a fantastic day, my friend, and we'll talk soon, okay? All right, do the same. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Take care. See you, Chris. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, 
either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.